I have a one older brother who's three years older than me. Now, he did a pretty good job bringing me into his group of friends when we were younger, while also at the same time protecting me from most of their shenanigans. But I've discovered a lot of sibling rivalries are competitive in nature. For us, we would come home and play different types of video games, street fighter, sports, whatever. But anytime I would beat him, he would look at me and say, well, you're adopted anyways. And I was just like, that's just mean. We would do Royal Rumble on our parents' bed, trying to throw one another off. I, we even had entry music. We had this wrestling belt. But as I started to hit my growth spurt, it got a little bit unfair. One of the games we played a lot was basketball, specifically the games horse or pig. Um, for the person to win at the end of the game, once you have the whole letter spelled out, you have to prove it. Prove it. There's often aspects of Jesus's life that many speculate about because the scriptures are generally silent. Specifically, what was it like for Jesus growing up? Think about it. The God-man, the incarnate creator of the world, at one point was seven years old. At one point, he was 14 years old. But it's not just that he was once a boy, but it's also that he was a brother. According to Mark 6, Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. Imagine what it was like growing up with the perfect God-man and the sibling rivalries that would have happened. How often would Jesus have been asked to prove it growing up? You see, this sibling relationship that Jesus had as the oldest is where this passage starts. Jesus is interacting with his brothers. And in verses 3 through 4, they are in essence telling him to prove it. In verse 3 in the NLT, it says that they are encouraging him to go and do the miracles all the, for all the crowd to see. And then in verse 4, it says this, you can't become famous if you hide like this. You can do, if you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. In essence, prove it. You've done miracles. You've multiplied bread and fish and fed lots of people. You've claimed to be the Messiah. You claim to do only what the Father shows you to do. So what, you know what, Jesus? Prove it. They are trying to get Jesus to prove his identity and show it off to others. As we continue in this passage, we begin to see what we try, ways of which we try to prove ourselves to God, to others, and even ourselves. So this passage is a continuation of our series on reframing Jesus, getting fresh portraits of Jesus from the Gospel of John. This takes place six months after chapter six. That chapter six took place during the Passover. 
This is an important festival called the Feast of Booths or Feast of Tabernacles, which we'll address in more detail next week. This specifically addresses what took place in chapter 5. In chapter 5, Jesus was in Judea, and during that time, he claimed to be equal with God through the act of healing an invalid man of 38 years on the Sabbath. This led the leaders to desire to kill Jesus. Now, this makes sense why Jesus would be a little hesitant to head towards Judea. You had a crowd and a, a leaders that were looking to kill you. But because he only does what the Father desires, sometime he knew that it was the right thing to do, so he headed towards the festival, even after he tells his brother that he won't. Now it's here that Jesus begins to expose the hypocrisy, and eventually the heart of their hypocrisy. Jesus uses what's here called a lesser to greater argument in the Jewish tradition. He points out that even they do what they are accusing him of. In this passage, he talks about circumcision. Circumcision played a very important role in the lives of Jews. It was a sign of the covenant God that he made with his people dating back to Abraham. It also played what's known as a, quote, perfecting rite, as they saw it make the person more whole than the that child was before. The Jewish people would be willing to perform a circumcision for a baby if it landed on a Sabbath. So Jesus says, hey, since you're willing to do the that work on the Sabbath, and here he is healing a man on the Sabbath, how are those not the same things? He's revealing their hypocrisy. But then he says this really important thing in verse 24 that we're going to land on today. In verse 24, I'll read it in three different translations. In the ESV, it says this, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The New Living Translation, I love how it says it. It says, Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. And then the message paraphrase. Don't be hypocritical. Use your head and heart to discern what is right, to test what is authentically right. He judges them with right judgment by looking beyond the appearances and looking beneath the surface. You see, Jesus has a problem with their interaction with the law. They are not using the law properly and are motivated by the wrong things. So they are then adding to the law. When you add to the law in our day, we call this legalism. So these leaders are judging Jesus from a legalistic framework. And here Jesus comes and he condemns legalism and offers us and the listeners life instead. So what I want to do this afternoon is I want to look at four different types of categories 
in which legalism can and often does show up. And in many ways, legalism is an attempt to prove it. It's an attempt to prove it. The first category is what I'll call prove it to God. These are those that are seeking to be justified before God by their own works. This has everything to do with our relationship with God. And in essence, it's the heartbeat of every religious system. If you do enough good things and avoid enough bad things, then God will accept you. Historically, this has played out in our understanding of salvation. The Reformation went about trying to solve this problem. What must I do to be saved? The answer, believe in Jesus. We are not made right with a holy God by our works. We are only made right with a holy God because of the works of the holy God on our behalf. Where was that done? In Christ. That means that we are forgiven. Paul says in Romans 3, he says, We all fall, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But thanks be to God that he made us right by his grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. I hope this is seared in your heart and your brain. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Oftentimes our prove it to God is like our interaction with vending machine Jesus. We think going up to the vending machine and putting in our good works means that he's then obligated to give us our salvation, give us right standing. I've done good, God, accept me. But that is not true. You and I need to be saved from this version of legalism because we can't live up to it. Jesus did it on our behalf. What makes you right with God? Is it your works? Then you may have a prove it to God heart. But if what makes you right with God is Jesus, it's his work on your behalf that makes you in right standing with God, not how well you live up to the law. But this isn't the only way legalism is played out. We are not just trying to prove it to God. The heart of a legalist is also trying to prove it to others. And this is the second category of legalism. Prove it to others. This is by adding human laws to the actual laws of the Bible. This takes the law of God and added to it the laws, plural, of men. These laws were, I believe, originally there to provide protection from actually breaking the law. You see, the Pharisees get a really bad rep. Now, I want to be honest. Like, they're the ones that eventually Jesus calls whitewashed tombs and that are clean on the outside, but on the inside, they're unclean. And yet, there's a sense to which their desire of what they were trying to do was to present God's people as holy so that their Messiah could come. 
They were trying to prove it. So I want you to think of it like this. Imagine a castle. And that castle is the rules that God actually gave. Now think of the additional laws that men give as a moat. A moat was designed to protect a castle from actually getting attacked. This is kind of how this type of legalism works. It's uh, additional laws above and beyond the actual law. But the problem is, is when the above and beyond ideas of wisdom become the actual law in people's lives. I was saved through a tradition that was heavily influenced by this type of legalism. In order to be licensed or ordained, I had to commit to never drinking alcohol, something that the Bible doesn't do, but it was built off of people's own personal negotiable convictions that then became um, law for everybody else. I even had a, um, I sold them, I, I drank alcohol, I had a glass of champagne at my wedding. They then sent me a follow-up document that had to re-clarify that. All right, my college in the same tradition would not have a dance because dancing would be seen as sinful. And in a lot of ways, these are originally built off of people's convictions. Because there's wisdom in this. You have to, you have to be wise in your use of certain things and how you engage with this evil world. And so convictions are negotiable, conscious-driven things. And those can be good, but unfortunately what can happen and get embedded into a group of people is when those convictions, those negotiables, turn into laws that become non-negotiable. And if you break them, you're breaking the very law itself. So we think this type of legalism... And I believe that this is the type of legalism that's very, very prevalent in our day. And this is, in a lot of ways, it's prevalent for us in our day because it's been prevalent for the generation prior to us. It's, how the, it's the way in which the world has kind of been living in the church for the last hundred years or so. But what I also want to say is that this type of legalism is not only prevalent in religious circles. I would actually argue that our secular society in our day is maybe even more legalistic in this way, adding human laws to the actual laws. This shows up in an inability to forgive. And where do we see that? Cancel culture. When a person, a company, doesn't live up to the rules and expectations of secular society's laws, they are then canceled. They are unforgiven. They are unclean. And they are expelled from society. This is what the Pharisees are doing to Jesus. This is what religious legalist Christians have done for a long time. And this is how the religious, quote unquote religious, in our day, in a secular society, lives it out. Cancel culture is the legalism of a secular age. It's because we've lost the understanding of forgiveness. 
We've lost an understanding that we are made right with God through his forgiveness that we are then called to forgive others. If you play a role in cancel culture, whether right or left, whether company or person, that may be a little bit of legalism in your heart. You may agree that we are saved by grace alone through faith, that you don't have to prove it to God, that we can't add on laws to God's laws and prove it to others. But what happens after we're saved? How do we grow up in the faith? This is the third form of legalism. And I'm just going to call it, prove it to myself. This is an approach to sanctification that is excessively reliant on human effort and forgetful of God's grace. Sanctification in our day means the growing up in the faith. How do I grow up? How do I mature? It's because of my effort. God may have done the work initially, but now it's up to me. Many take what Paul says in Philippians 2 here, and I would say they push it too far. He says in two, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. People often take this statement um, in alignment with Jesus' brother, James, that says faith without works is dead. To mean that faith is only alive when our works initiate that faith means that our heart said, that says, yes, Jesus' work saves me, but then it's all up to me. Now I have to prove it to myself and I have to show that I'm able to live up to the standards from here. God got me here, but I have to take it from here. But we miss what Paul says in the next verse of Philippians 2. We miss so much. He goes on to say, this is verse 13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. All of our growing up in the faith is an act of God's grace. Do you desire to grow? That's because God is at work in you. Thanks be to God. Do you have the ability to grow, the power to do it? That's because God is at work in you. He's giving you the ability and the desire. Our maturity, our sanctification, our discipleship is as dependent on God as is our salvation. Our growth is an act of gratitude to a God who initiates and empowers. We grow up by God's grace, not by only by our human efforts. Are we participants of? Absolutely. I'm not saying we just sit back and let it happen. We actively participate, but we participate with the power, a desire that comes from God. But I think there's a fourth way that's creeped into our day, and I would say even our church. It's not a legalism proper per se, but it's a reaction against legalism. So if we have to prove it to our God, if we feel like we have to prove it to others and prove it ourselves, as a reaction to those, we now live in a day 
that we have to prove that I'm not a legalist. Like I said, this is more of a response against legalism, but it forms its own version of legalism. I think many people are so concerned with not being a legalist that we go all the way to the other end of the spectrum. When we don't call one another to the obedience that Jesus calls us to. I mean, think of this. Think about how we um, talk about, how we live out spiritual disciplines. And I'm, I'm guilty of this. And in many ways, as we've gone through nourish, I've unintentionally led us this way. For many of us, those were required or encouraged within a traditional legalistic framework. If you do these, you are acceptable to God. But what's happened is, now hold on before I go there. Let me be very, very clear. Those are very, very good disciplines to have a rule of life, to live according to the spiritual means of grace disciplines. Those are so good for us. But what we have tended to do is overreact to the legalistic framework and not call people to them. And not say, no, you need to do this. We, this is good for you. So even if I'm not trying to make it a legalist, you have to. I still want to call you to the goodness of them. Oftentimes we're so afraid of being framed as legalists. We don't call one another to obey. We don't hold one another accountable in good, godly, grace-filled ways. We forget that we are called to teach one another to obey. The life of God is to walk in His ways, not my own ways once I'm saved. And so even to say that, it's like, oh, but don't be a legalist, Justin. You don't get to tell me what to do. You're right, I don't. But I get to tell you and we get to tell one another what God told us to do in the scriptures. And by his power and by his grace and by his spirit, we live those out together. It's not legalism to call one another to obedience. It's love. Not only do we do this with spiritual disciplines, but the same is true of the gathering in all of our disciple-making environments. For so many people, there's this legalistic framework of, quote, going to church. And so now that we see churches every uh, moment of every day as the people of God in everyday life, the overreaction is to experience this freedom that you don't intentionally work towards being with the people of God. And that's resulting in my generation of people just thinking they can live their faith on a screen by consuming, which we'll talk about next week, or it's that they can do it on their own. Brothers and sisters, we can't do that. We need one another. You need to be with your missional community. There's so much goodness in regularly getting together with those beyond your missional community. And it's not legalism to call one another to that. It's love. It's help. When it comes to any calls of obedience, when you're a recovering legalist, it all can come across as legalism. But that's not what it is. We don't need to go to the other end of the pendulum to prove we're not a legalist. We don't have to prove it. In Christ, we don't have to prove it to God. 
We don't have to add on to the rules and prove it to one another. We don't have to see our growth in Christ as up to us proving it to ourselves. And we don't get off the hook of following Jesus' commands. We teach one another to obey. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus condemns legalism. And he offers us life instead. And that life is found in him.